An interesting movement is sweeping the country. It's called the Emergent Church. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Today, you'll hear a critical examination of the Emergent Church by the noted philosopher and theologian, Dr. Norman Geisler. Welcome to Evidence and Answers with author, speaker, and Christian apologist, Dr. Pat Zuckerman. Recently, Pat invited Norman Geisler to address the Emergent Church at a conference in Hawaii. Today, you'll hear part one of that presentation. And by the way, it's crucial resources like these that we offer at evidenceandanswers.org. Pat's articles, books, interviews with leading scholars, and past programs available for download on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. All at evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now, Pat Zuckerin presents Dr. Norman Geisler on The Emergent Church. Emergent or emergency. I want to share with you on the emergent church, a lot of the things we're talking about this weekend are things that are outside, they're out there, other religions, other uh, cults, but this is something that's inside, and it's inside the Christian church, and it's something that's very important. It's called the emergent church movement, and my question is emergence or emergency, and you'll see why we ask this question. I want to begin uh, looking at some uh, verses of Scripture that I put on the screen for you because, after all, this is a, a conference where we're trying to apply the truths of the Bible to the realities inside and outside the church. And so let's just rehearse a few things that our Lord said. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. So Jesus apparently wanted us to beware of things that, that look good but weren't good that looked orthodox but weren't orthodox, that looked like they were really Christian but weren't really Christian. In other words, that looked like a sheep but really were a wolf. He also said many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Not some, but many. Many will rise up and many people will be deceived by them. So that has to apply to us as well. There must be many false prophets today and there must be many Christians who are being deceived. And, uh, First Timothy, his apostle, Paul said, now the Holy Spirit expressly says that in the latter days some will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and to doctrines of demons. That's a very important passage because, as we know, the last days is the whole period between Christ's first and second coming, but obviously we're closer to the last part of the last days than we were, about 2,000 years closer than when Jesus spoke, and he said, the Holy Spirit expressly says that many will depart from the faith. They started out well, but they didn't end well. They'll depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. There are demons. They're fallen angels. They want to deceive people. The devil is a deceiver, and his cohorts are deceivers, and they're operating inside the church. And they were there in the first century, and they're still here today. First John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Don't believe everyone who says, I got a revelation from God. Uh, don't believe everyone who says, I had a near-death experience, or an angel appeared to me. Don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Not everything that somebody says is a revelation is a revelation from God. Maybe a revelation from seducing spirits or doctrines of demons. With that in mind, I want to say something else. In the New Testament, 
the apostles named names. How else could people know who the true teachers and who the false teachers were? Paul warned against Hymenaeus, 2 Timothy 2, 17. Philetus, the same verse. Demas, two chapters later. Alexander, the same chapter. John warned against Diotrephes. There are five specific persons named in the New Testament as people to stay away from, people who were inside uh, the church, but who were teaching things contrary uh, to our Lord and to his word. Now, with that in mind, I'd like to take a look at the emerging figures in the emerging church. Stanley Grenz is the grandfather of the movement. He no longer belongs to the movement. He died, uh, Stanley Grenz. Uh, the father of the movement is Brian McLaren, and uh, he has taught most of the younger people in the movement, like Robert Bell and other names like Doug Padgett, Tony Jones, uh, John Frankie, and Donald Miller. Doug and Tony wrote a book called An Emergent Manifesto and are popular figures in the emergent church movement. Donald Miller, uh, Brian McLaren, said of uh, uh, his book, Blue Like Jazz, I can think of no better book than Blue Like Jazz to introduce Christian spirituality, a way of life, to people for whom Christianity, a system of beliefs, seems like a bad math problem. Uh, so McLaren, the father of the movement, blesses this as one of the best books in the movement. Eugene Peterson, who is uh, known for his translation of the Bible called The Message, teaches at Regent College, said of the shack, it has the potential to do for our generation what John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress did for his. And the shack is part of the emergent church movement. Dr. Albert Moeller, president of Southern Baptist Seminary, said this book includes undiluted heresy. That's quite a difference. The New Pilgrim's Progress to Undiluted Heresy. Uh, which is it? Helpful or heretical? Let me give you basic background of the emergent church movement. The key influence on the movement, which is acknowledged by its leaders, is called postmodernism. Postmodernism is the designation of the philosophy of our day in the postmodern world. And Nietzsche, who died in 1900, is really the father of the movement. Uh, Nietzsche, you remember, said, God is dead. But Nietzsche said, God is dead. Now, when God dies in the culture, objective truth dies, because you can't have an absolute idea unless you have an absolute mind. There is no absolute mind. There's no absolute ideas. The death of exclusive truth, pluralism, a characteristic of postmodernism. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. The death of objective meaning, called conventionalism. What you may mean by it is different than what somebody else may mean by it. The death of thinking, logic, anti-foundationalism. There are no foundational principles of thought that's the basis for all thinking. Thinking is dead. The death of objective interpretation called deconstructionism. There is no one interpretation of the Bible or any book. There is no objective interpretation because there's no objective meaning and no objective meaner. The death of objective values, subjectivism. What's valuable to me may not be valuable to you. Now, here are seven characteristics of postmodernism 
most, if not all of which, are adopted by the emergent church movement. This is the idea behind the emergent church. We're living in a postmodern world. We accept these postmodern postulates, and we go from there. McLaren described postmodernism this way, but for me, opposing it, postmodernism, is as futile as opposing English language. It's here. It's reality. It's the future. It's the way my generation processes every other fact on the event horizon. Why is it so important? Because when your view of truth is changed, get this, when your confidence in the human ability to know truth in any objective way is revolutionized, then everything changes. That includes theology. That includes what we believe as Christians. And so the Christians who are in the emergent church movement are trying to be relevant, are trying to be contemporary, are trying to be with it, are trying to reinterpret Christianity in a postmodern way, which means that your view of objective truth, your view of absolute truth, all must change. So I want to do two things, talk about the background and then talk about some basic books in the movement. First of all, key books by emergent church leaders. Brian McLaren wrote The Church on the Other Side, A Generous Orthodoxy, A New Kind of Christian, and Everything Must Change. And he really means that everything must change. Stanley Grenz wrote A Primer on Postmodernism, Beyond Foundationalism, and Revising Evangelical Theology. We can no longer live by the old evangelical theology. Robert Bell uh, wrote Velvet Elvis, Repainting the Christian Faith. Doug Padgett and Tony Jones, An Emergent Manifesto of Hope. Tony Jones, The New Christian Dispatches from the Emergent Frontier. And Donald Miller wrote Blue Like Jazz. These are many of the men and books that characterize the emergent church movement. Uh, key books, Steve Chalky and uh, Alan Mann, The Lost Message of Jesus. Dave Tomlinson, The Post-Evangelical. Spencer Burke and Barry Taylor, The Heretic's Guide to Eternity. William P. Young, The Shack. See also theemergentvillage.com where uh, there are many articles and many other people mentioned. So this gives you a little background of who the key figures are in the emergent church movement, what the key books are. Now let's examine their basic beliefs. What is it that they believe? By way of introduction, I want to say that not all emergents hold all the following beliefs, but most emergents hold most of them, and all emergents belong to a movement that includes all of these. And I also want to say there are some good things, and I'll mention uh, them uh, in a moment. There are some good things uh, in here, and so the critiques should not be taken as exclusive because everything has uh, some truth in it with an admixture of uh, error. A response to the emergent church. What I want to do is take their central arguments and apply a verse that the Apostle Paul told us we should apply to everything. 2 Corinthians 10.5. We destroy arguments and every proud argument against the knowledge of God and bring every thought captive to Christ. What I'm simply trying to do here is to take the Bible, the basis of our faith, and to apply it to 
these beliefs and to see how they stack up. I was looking through a magazine once and I thought, that is a perfect illustration of uh, what I'm trying to do. A self-defeating argument is like a gun that the barrel is pointing back at yourself. You aim it at someone else, but you really kill yourself. It has self-defeating claim. Aims at something else and shoots itself. And so what I want to do now is to take all of the claims, the major claims of the emergent church, and take what they're aiming at and show how it defeats itself, how it's a self-defeating claim. For example, if I said to you, I cannot speak a word in English, you would say to me, didn't he say that in English? So that's a self-defeating claim. I can't say in English that I can't say anything in English. Self-destructive, aims at something else, kills itself. Let's take one of the first claims of postmodernism, known in the church as the emergent church. Anti-absolutism. They're opposed to absolutes. For example, McLaren says, arguments that pit absolutism versus relativism and objectivism versus subjectivism prove meaningless or absurd to modern people. We've come beyond that. We don't believe in absolutes. We believe in a broadened gospel, emergent evangelism. Well, let's state relativism. We cannot know absolute truth. Now, the problem with that statement is it shoots itself. Why? Because really, it's saying we know that we cannot know absolute truth. But if you know that you cannot know absolute truth, then you do know, in which case the statement is self-destructive. Hangs itself on its own gallows, pulls the carpet right out from under itself. So relativism is self-defeating. I got these uh, pictures from the internet. They said you could use them if you don't change them. I didn't change a thing. It comes from emergency. Chastened epistemology. Epistemology is how we know. And this is satire on the emergent church or postmodernism. I'm probably wrong about a lot of things, but I'm sure you're wrong about everything, and your confidence is driving me crazy. They can't stand anyone who claims to know anything. They can't stand anyone who claims to know anything for sure. Chastened epistemology. Certainty. Of course I'm sure about something. I never question my own doubts. You know what the, pro- the problem with skepticism is? It's not skeptical enough because it's not skeptical about skepticism. You know what the problem with agnosticism is? It's not agnostic enough. It's not agnostic about agnosticism. If you doubt doubt, you're back to knowing something for sure. If you're agnostic about agnosticism, you're back to knowing something for sure. Of course, I'm sure about something. I never question my own doubts. That's the problem with the postmodern mentality. Second characteristic of postmodernism and the emergent church people who follow in that tracks is anti-exclusivism. Christians have a very exclusive message. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Well, that's pretty narrow. Of everyone in the world, there's only one way to God. Neither is there salvation in any other. There's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Postmodernism is opposed to that kind of exclusivism. It's anti-exclusivistic. Missional Christians, that's what they call themselves, missional Christian faith is search 
that Jesus did not come to make some people saved and others condemned. I'm not sure which Bible they were reading uh, when they came to that conclusion. Jesus did not come to help some people be right while leaving everyone else to be wrong. Jesus did not come to create another exclusive religion. I am the door. Anyone who comes any other way is the thief and the robber. I am the way, the truth, and the life. A little hard to match with Jesus' claims. If you don't believe in me, you're going to die in your sins. He that doesn't believe in the Son is going to be condemned forever, uh, and so forth. Another satire, generous orthodoxy, they call their view. Okay, it's not really either, but it sounds better than the truth. <laughs> generous orthodoxy. It's not either generous and it's not orthodox. Self-defeating nature of this pluralistic view. No view is exclusively true. Well, it claims that its view, that no view is exclusively true, is exclusively true. <laughs> you get it? Self-destructive. The very claim that no view is exclusively true is an exclusive truth that excludes all other views. So the pluralist is just as exclusive as the ex exclusivist. Third, anti-objectivism. If you are uh, aware of what's going on in our universities or in our culture today, you know that it's opposed to saying there's objective truth. There is no objective truth because what's true for me is not necessarily true for you. We ought to condemn the postmodern questioning of the Enlightenment assumption that knowledge is objective and hence dispassionate, said Grants. That's, that's a postmodern assumption. That's uh, a modern assumption that you can have objective truth. The postmodern world says you can't have objective truth. Well, what is truth? It's an adventure, not an axiom. A story still unfolding, not a tale already told. The journey is what counts, not the destination, right? Wrong. It's not the journey that counts. It is the destination. The claim of anti-objectivists. There are no objectively true statements. Self-refutation. It is an objectively true statement that there are no objectively true statements. See, it's like committing suicide. It's like an Australian boomerang. You throw it out there to hit something else, and it comes around and hits you in the back of the head. The emergent church movement is based on postmodernistic premises, and postmodern premises are self-defeating. They're self-destructive. To say that it's an objectively true statement, that there are no objectively true statements, destroys itself. So what do we have left? Stories. What are they? Myths we entertain our minds with so we can avoid nasty modern categories like truth, reality, and divine revelation. Why is it when you go in, even into a Christian bookstore, you see a large section of novels? Because all we want now is stories. We don't want truth. We want stories, which are myths we entertain our minds with to avoid nasty modern categories like truth, reality, and divine revelation. Why is the shack so popular? It's a great story. It's a great story, and it grabs people. But what's grabbing you in it? Is what's grabbing you biblical truth? Did they go out in a wilderness and discover a Bible in a little church and read the Bible and get the truth from God? There's no Bible there. 
there's God appearing as three separate persons, which is a heretical belief to begin with. Uh, the first one, God the Father, being a large African-American uh, woman. This is not uh, biblical truth. These are stories that people entertain themselves with and that they love. Anti-rationalism. This is called fideism. Fideism is not a new kind of dog food. Fideism is the belief that all you do is believe. There's no reason for what you believe. You just believe. Grins chided 20th century evangelicals who have devoted much energy to the task of demonstrating the credibility of the Christian faith. Well, he may as well have written that about me. I've spent now uh, 55 years of energy that, according to Grins, is absolutely useless, uh, demonstrating the credibility of the Christian faith. Following the intellect can sometimes lead us astray, away from the truth. Well, note, not following basic rational thought will lead you there a whole lot faster. A whole lot faster. Uh, if you're trying to get to a certain destination and you have a map, the rational thing is to follow the roads and the map that can get you to the destination. The irrational thing is saying, I just kind of take the road I feel. You know, it feels good to me. Uh, it's kind of like Star Wars, you remember? Thank you very much. It's kind of like uh, Star Wars. When if you just feel the force flow when he's doing the pinpoint bombing uh, on the space station. They turned off the computer. You can't trust technology. They closed, the, they stopped thinking because you can't trust thought. And they closed their eyes and just feel the force flow. And if you want to know what's wrong with that, put yourself in the 747. You're in a deep dense fog. The PA comes on, the pilot says, we don't know where we are, we're lost, but relax back there, close your eyes, because up here in the cockpit, we've all closed our eyes, I turned off the computer, and we're just kind of feeling the force flow. In other words, we're just about to crash. Right? That's exactly where the church is today, just about to crash. Anti-rationalism, because knowledge is a luxury beyond our means. Faith is the best we can hope for. What an opportunity. Faith hasn't encountered openness like this in several hundred years. They said, this is great. People are giving up reason. They're just kind of feeling their way through life. They're just doing it by faith. What a wonderful chance to go to them and say, well, here's the Christian faith. Drop any affair you have, may have had with certainty, proof, and argument, and replace it with dialogue, conversation, intrigue, and search. That's the postmodern attitude. Fideism, anti-rationalism, get away from reason, get away from proof, get away from uh, evidence, away from what the New Testament says. We've not done these things in a corner. We've given you many indisputable uh, proofs and take a leap of faith in the dark. Or just dialogue with one another. What's that? Dialogue, I talk, you listen. Dialogue is the key word today because dialogue just continues a conversation and never comes to a conclusion. Donald Miller in Blue Like Jazz put it this way, my belief in Jesus did not seem rational or scientific, and yet there was nothing I could do to separate myself from this belief. Well, there was something you could do. If it's not rational, don't believe it. Christianity does not say take a leap of faith in the dark. Christianity says take a step of faith in the light. Let me illustrate it. Here's one elevator. 
the lights are on, you can see the floor, and a large man is getting out. There's another elevator, no lights on, you can't see if there's a floor, and nobody's getting on and off. Which one is the safest one to get on? We have to take a step of faith in the light, in the light of the evidence, not a leap of faith in the dark. My recent faith struggle is not one of intellect. I don't believe I will ever walk away from God for intellectual reasons. Who knows anything anyway? There are many ideas within Christian spirituality that contradict the fact of reality as I understand them. A statement like this offends some Christians because they believe if aspects of their faith do not obey the facts of reality, they're not true. Well, he's absolutely right there. If I say, this is a a bottle of water in my left hand, uh, it's a true statement because, in fact, there is one in my left hand. If I say, this is a black Bible in my right hand, it's a true statement because there's a black Bible in my right hand. That's the facts, and that's what we should live by. And to say that we're not going to live that way is irrational and self-destructive. Thank you so much for joining us on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman. It's our hope to keep a quality program on the air and on the web that presents an intelligent response to the issues of our day and demonstrates the truth of the claims of Christ. If you agree, please support us with your prayers and gifts. One of the ways you can do that is by purchasing our resources available at evidenceandanswers.org. You'll educate yourself and your family, and you'll help us keep expanding. You can download past shows on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, read Pat's articles, and purchase Pat's new book with Dr. Norman Geisler, The Apologetics of Jesus, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Go there today. I'm Kevin Harris. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers.